Well, as Zach mentioned, today we're continuing in our series, Nine Conversations, where we're looking at some individual dialogues that Jesus has with some folks that he encounters in his earthly ministry. And these dialogues are invaluable to us, I think, because you can learn a lot about a person's character if you could just be kind of a fly on the wall during their personal conversations. And these conversations, even the private ones where it's only Jesus and the other person present, have been opened up for our examination through the Gospels. And so it's our hope that as we examine these conversations, we're going to discover something of the captivating charm of Jesus Christ that attracted so many people of of wildly different social, economic, religious, even moral backgrounds, even when, as we'll see here, the conversation involves him exposing their own sins, because Jesus always tells people the truth. And it can be hard to tell the truth. When, when Rob and I first got married, we lived in a garage apartment in Avalon Park, which was awesome, except that I worked here, and so I felt like I was just always in the car commuting. And even though we'd done um, you know, pre-marriage counseling and we talked about our goals and dreams and how we would relate to each other's crazy families, one thing that we never talked about was a very practical issue, dinner. Uh, who was responsible, what time, etc. And he worked closer to Avalon than me, so he was always home before me, but I still felt like it was my job to have dinner on the table as soon as I possibly could when I got home. Now, I never actually voiced this to Rob, but he didn't protest, so I figured he must uh, expect it of me too. So one day I'd had a particularly long day at work and I was getting out late, and as I sat in traffic, I started to take a mental inventory of, you know, what what do I have that I can make for dinner? And I, I thought, you know, I can make pasta if I just had an onion. So I called Rob and I said, hey, are you are you home already? And he said, no, I'm at Barnes & Noble. And I said, oh, great, um, I got out late, I just need to stop and get an onion so I can make pasta tonight. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll see you in a bit then. I'm like, yep, we hung up. Now secretly... I'd been hoping that he would ask me if I wanted him to go get the onion. And of course, I wanted him to go get the onion. He's at Barnes and Noble, probably sipping a caramel latte, reading Monocle magazine while I'm bumper to bumper with my thinly veiled rage at the 20-something in front of me who keeps stopping abruptly because she's texting while driving. So, So after stewing in silence about this for about 10 minutes, I call him back and I say, hey, are you still Barnes & Noble? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, would you, would you mind picking up the onion for me? He's like, yeah, sure, absolutely. Great, thanks, we hang up. But then, as I continue to drive, I start to feel guilty. This is, you know, this is my job, right? I'm the lady, I'm responsible for the onions. And it seemed really unfair that I was responsible for the onions, but maybe I should do it anyway because of Ephesians 5.22. So I call him back <laughs> and say in my most passive aggressive tone, hey, Never mind about the onion. Um, I'll just pick it up myself. He's like, oh, okay, see you soon. We hang up. And then I really start to seethe. How dare he let me pick up the onion? I mean, this is, I have a full-time job. It's 2012. I have a college degree. How can he ask me to do this every day? How can I, why do I have to get the onion while he's sitting at Barnes & Noble? So I stop. I get the onion. We pull into the driveway around the same time, and I kind of stamp up the stairs. And I go in and I start to try to make my pasta, at which point I realize there is not a single clean dish or utensil in the entire house because someone has made midnight pizza. It wasn't me. So at that point, I crack like an egg. I slam the dishwasher. I mean, I've gone from passive-aggressive to aggressive-aggressive, and I swing around to say something unkind to him, and I see him standing there looking a bit sheepish uh, with a flower extended out to me. And he's like, I got you this flower. And I'm like, I didn't want your flower! I wanted an onion. I just wanted an onion because I didn't want to have to stop and I had such a long day and I just have to do this every day while you're at Barnes and Noble and I'm doing all the work and, he, and, and, and I just didn't want to do this today. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm, 
I'm so sorry. I, I knew today was your long day, so, so I was actually waiting at Waterford to ask you to join me for dinner, but you seem so determined to get an onion <laughs> and to make pasta that I just didn't mention it. Why is it so hard for us to tell each other the truth? I could have had a lovely dinner, a, a, a meal of pork belly tacos followed by a hot bag of donuts at Smoky Bones with my husband that night, but instead we had this enormous fight because we just didn't tell each other the truth. I didn't tell him the truth, he didn't tell me the truth. At the beginning of our conversation, one of the most gracious things that we can do for one another is to tell one another the truth. Why is it so hard? When's the last time that you, that you wanted to tell someone the truth, but then for some reason you didn't? Why'd you stop? Was it uh, a friend that you think is making poor decisions with her life? Was it maybe telling an adult parent that they're pushing up against your boundaries? Maybe it was telling your spouse that, you know, you, you love them and you're with them, but you're just starting to feel stuck. What stopped you from telling them the truth? For me, I know it's fear. I'm afraid to upset people. I'm afraid uh, to cause conflict. I don't want to rock the boat. But if I'm really honest, that's not really about them. It's, it's about me. It doesn't protect them. It protects me, you know, from, from the discomfort of the conflict, from the personal risk that would happen if I made them angry because then maybe they would begin to scrutinize my behavior, and I know that I have plenty to scrutinize. So there's a lot of reasons that I think we withhold the truth. Maybe yours are different than mine, but I want to submit to you whatever it is that keeps us from telling one another the truth. I don't think it's actually kindness. I don't think it's love. So we're picking up today in John chapter four where, we, where Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And this chapter begins with Jesus having to make a rather uh, abrupt uh, departure from Judea and he's headed back to Galilee and Samaria is right in between the two. Uh, we don't know really why he had to leave so abruptly. We do know that probably John the Baptist had recently been arrested and the Jews who were investigating John had him associated with Jesus. So Jesus very wisely makes a quick exit. And again, the quickest way back to Galilee is through Samaria. But as we'll read in this passage, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I actually love the literal translation here. Jews do not share utensils with Samaritans. That's so insulting, isn't it? I will not share my fork with someone from Oviedo. Jesus, <laughs> it is really insulting. Jesus has been traveling quickly, maybe without a lot of supplies. Uh, he's tired, thirsty, hungry. He sits down next to a well to rest while the disciples go into town to get some food. And a woman, a Samaritan woman, comes to the well to draw water. So we're going to pick up there in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. I'm going to read this straight through to verse 42. And I know that it's a bit long, but stick with me. It's all narrative, so I think it should be fairly uh, easy to follow along with. So just hang in there. Beginning in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. By the way, I love that parenthetical note because it's like John just wants us to know that Jesus isn't just making Cinnabons ex nihilo when no one's looking for himself. Um, verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? Now she, again, she's surprised that he's speaking to her because in rabbinic tradition, uh, a man was... They didn't even want men speaking to their own wives in public. And not only was she a woman, but she was a Samaritan woman, which we're going to come back and talk more about later. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Now, Jesus, in using this term living water, is referring to the Holy Spirit. But for the woman, living water would have meant uh, just moving water, something from a river or a spring. And there's no moving water sources in this whole area, and she knows it. So that's why she's getting a little bit biting with Jesus here. She's like, there's no rivers here. You don't have a bucket. What are you, what are you trying to pull? So Jesus answered in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Again, she's thinking literal water, but, but still she asks for Jesus's help, which is good. That's the right direction. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Kind of a hard turn there. So we're going to come back and we're going to talk about that in a bit. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, at this point, she sees that Jesus is a prophet, that he knows these things about her, and, and, and maybe she legitimately wants to have her most pressing theological question answered, but I think probably it's more likely that she, having just had her sins called out by this man, just wants to change the subject. So she asks, you know, do the, do the Jews have it right about worship or, or do we? Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshiper, worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So despite her discomfort with, with the direction that this conversation has taken, the woman stays with Jesus. She continues to engage his conversation, and as a result, he reveals his true identity to her. I am the Messiah. I am he. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and she said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And then jumping to verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is God's word. So if you've been around church for any length of time, it's very likely that you're familiar with this passage. It's been preached on a lot. Much ink has been spilled to describe the way that Jesus continues to just meet this woman exactly where she is. She doesn't know exactly what she's asking for when she asks him for a drink, but he meets her there anyway. And he shows her what she really needs. It's, it's a beautiful, funny, tender conversion of a woman who has been living a sinful lifestyle for we know not how long. But as I read it afresh this time around, I was struck that it's also a story about the power of telling the truth. And that's primarily, primarily the lens through which I want us to look at this passage today. John's gospel is rife with misunderstandings on the part of the people that Jesus is speaking with. This woman uh, misunderstands what he means when he's offering her living water. Just one chapter before this, Jesus talks to a teacher of the law named Nicodemus, and he says to him, unless a person be born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, I, I can't go back into my mother's womb a second time. 
And I, I just want to imagine that Jesus sometimes is just like, you're killing me, Smalls. Like, just wait till chapter six when I tell you guys you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like, come on, just work with me, people. But what's, what's wonderful about Jesus in this interaction and other inter- interactions is that he doesn't, he doesn't require this woman to have a complete understanding, a perfect understanding of what she's asking for before he's willing to give it. He just wants her to ask. So this woman takes this uh, important, albeit poorly understood step toward Jesus by asking him for the water he's offering. But then right after she asks for it, it seems to take this hard turn. She's finally done what he wants. She finally asks for the living water and he says, go get your husband and come back. And he knows he's Jesus. He knows her situation. So why would he say that? Because it seems like it would drive her away from a conversation that he's trying to draw her into. But I think what Jesus is doing here, I think... uh, I think what Jesus always does for us when we ask for his help is to reveal to us what it is that we really need. Not the help that we ask for, not not even the help that we think we need, but what we actually need. Because when we invite Jesus in, he always tells us the truth because the truth will actually help us. If you're trying to open a, you know, a tin can with a butter knife, a good friend is not going to say to you, hey, good job, like, just keep at it, man, you're making progress. No, they're going to say to you, hey, that would be a lot easier with, with a can opener because the truth actually helps us. One time when, I, when Rob was away on a trip, I had been making plans for Ember and I uh, for Saturday. It's a long day to do solo uh, with, with a small child. You, you want to have stuff to do because there are only so many episodes of Tom the Tow Truck that one can watch before one begins to fantasize about you know, setting fire to one's house, hypothetically. So I planned to take her on a bike ride and then go to the park, and, uh, and we were ready to do those things. She has this cute little pink tricycle, this little radio flyer bike. It's adorable. So we're getting ready. I open the door to go outside, and then just as I open the door, this deluge of rain just starts to come down. Just buckets of water, huge flash of lightning. So I have to turn around and I look at my sweet little girl with her sweet little pigtails who was just beaming with excitement. And I'm like, babe, I'm, I'm so sorry, but we, we can't go out there. And, 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 and I know that she can see the rain coming through the window at this point. Um, and there's a huge peal of thunder. And, and, and she looks at me just so sweetly and says, but I need to go out there. And you know, all, you know, there's, there's like branches hitting, hitting the side of our house. And I'm like, babe, do you hear that? It's really bad. We can't go out in this storm. Now, by this time, tears have breached. They are streaming down her sweet little face. I mean, that face could just melt the heart of Voldemort. And she looks me right in the eyes and says with just utter sincerity, don't you love me at all? Yeah. Yes, I love you. There's shingles flying off the house. Yes, I love you. I don't want you to go out there and get, you know, sucked up to the land of Oz. You know, sometimes we just have such tunnel vision for what we want that we can't see what we actually need. But Jesus loves us too much. He loves us too much to give us what we want if what we want is going to get us hurt. So when this woman at the well finally asked Jesus for his help, sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back, the way he offers his help is to tell her the truth about what she really needs. And the truth is she doesn't need a drink out of this well. She needs a drink of living water. She needs to receive Jesus and for her life to be transformed through that uh, meeting. She needs, to, she needs to leave this lifestyle that has her, as the text tells us, uh, coming at the sixth hour to, to, to draw water. That's high noon, hottest part of the day. So she's coming to the well to draw water at at this disgusting hour 
because there's no one there to shame her. She doesn't need a jar of water. She needs living water. She needs to hear the truth so that there's at least a possibility for her to change. So he tells her the truth. You've had five husbands and the man you have now isn't your husband at all. Now I want to make really clear that this is not, this is not Jesus trying to humiliate her. It's important for us to, to note the tone of this interaction. First of all, he does like a, a classic compliment sandwich. You know, the thing that people do to you when they want to tell you the worst at something, so they put it between two things that you're mildly competent at. Uh, for example, I, I can't sing and keep a beat at the same time. So one time at a worship rehearsal, uh, we, were, we were doing a song, and Andy gives me a tambourine to play during the song, and you would think that that is an easy instrument to play, right? It has, it has one job, just jingle, or rattle, or what is it? I don't know what a, I don't know what a tambourine, you don't know either, so don't laugh at me. So <laughs> it does something, and so I'm playing the tambourine, I'm singing the song, and as soon as we finish the song, Andy comes over and he says, you are doing just great on those harmonies, Kaylee. I don't think the tambourine is going to be quite your instrument, but you are just killing it on the choruses, right? Compliment sandwich. So Jesus says, Jesus says to her, you know, you're right. You're right when you say you have no husband, but the word translated right here is the word kalos, which is often translated as lovely or beautiful. He's saying, you've done a lovely thing by saying this. You've told me the truth. You've done an honest thing because you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now you're not married to. You've told me the truth. So even though Jesus exposes this woman's sin and even though it's embarrassing enough for her to want to change the subject, he takes care to do it in such a way that is not humiliating to her. I think it's no accident that, that he's talking to her alone. I mean, did it really take all 12 of the other guys to go buy bread for 13 people? There's, there's a design here, you know, it's, it's on purpose. He's protecting her dignity in a potentially very shaming exchange. I don't want to pause here for a second because I think there's an opportunity for, for, for us to all learn a valuable lesson. There's a valuable lesson for all of us in how Jesus approaches this woman. There is a way to tell the truth to the people in our lives without injuring them, at least not beyond you know, the, the unavoidable pain of exposure. So this is not Jesus advocating that we go around sneaking up on sinners and busting them in the act. That's not gonna win anybody for the gospel. People, people might call you a tool of the kingdom, but in the words of Inigo Montoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. This is not what Jesus wants. The purpose of revealing her sin to her is not to humiliate, but to heal this woman to heal her. You understand, treatment only becomes possible when there's been a diagnosis. Jesus is never trying to hurt us by revealing to us our sin. If you are ever telling someone the truth with the intention of hurting them, you're not telling them the whole truth because you're leaving out the part where you're rejoicing in their failures, which means you are not seeing them nor representing their failure in a fair light. Jesus is never trying to hurt us by revealing to us our sin. This kind of exposure is an act of grace so we don't keep traveling a path that will lead to our destruction. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. It doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. God's not trying to humiliate you, but there is a certain pain we experience just in the exposure itself, I know. My husband talked me into trying CrossFit, and before you say anything, I know that I vowed in another sermon that I would never do that, but he's handsome and persuasive, so I went, 
And he'd been going about three months before I tried it. Uh, and he would come home with these stories about what CrossFit class was like. And they went something like this. Today in class, uh, everyone got in a line and took turns punching me in the face. And then after that, they all made a circle around me and laughed. Now, <laughs> I knew that that couldn't actually be considered like weight-bearing exercise. So I assumed that he was exaggerating, but I did get the impression that there was maybe some kind of uh, intentional humiliation that was happening here, like some kind of initiation gauntlet for new people. So I was really nervous on my first day because I hadn't done anything even remotely athletic for like two years. But when I got there and I did the first class, nobody called me out for being weak. No one pointed at me and laughed. Nobody singled me out. However, when I went to go get my kettlebell for one of the exercises we were doing, the only one I could lift was this teeny tiny itty bitty little baby kettlebell that was actually in fact pink. And uh, the, 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 the circle that you hold it by was actually bigger than the ball itself. So I'm standing there with my tiny pink ball swinging it up and down and I have to pause to rest because it's exhausting. And I had to do all this while next to me, there's a woman tossing this enormous navy blue, massive, just Sylvester Stallone of a kettlebell effortlessly up and down beside me. And she was eight months pregnant. So there is a kind of humiliation that happens simply in, in, when our weakness is exposed, even if it's not intentional. I mean, these were good people. They're not trying to embarrass me. They were, in fact, trying to help me become healthier, but being around them exposed my own weakness. And of course, that's painful. Of course, it's painful. But without the exposure, there is no impetus for change. It is the necessary first step to getting better. So if you've been exposed, if you got caught and it was painful and now you just feel like God's out to get you, listen, he is. He is out to get you, but not to punish you. He's out to get you back. He's out to rescue you from something that could wreck your life, and I know it's painful. He has rescued me from my poor choices more times than I'd like to admit, and it is painful every single time. But if pain is what will separate us from our idols, idols of security, relationships, money, success, happiness even, if we worship things that don't give us life back. And pain is what finally breaks our bondage to these lifeless things, then that pain is not the fury, but the grace of God. I know this woman was experiencing pain. She'd been exposed, and this would be a great time for her to take her jar and go home, and that's what makes her response so remarkable to me. Her response is to stay in the light. She's been exposed. She's in pain. She could retreat, but she, she stays. She stays in the light with Jesus. I don't know what he's revealed to you that hurts too much to look at, but listen, Stay in the light with him. Stay in the light with him because you have no idea what the impact of that decision might be. She had no idea what the impact of her decision might be. Not only is Jesus not attempting to humiliate her with this exposure, he has in mind to enlist her help to heal a wound that's almost a thousand years old in the life of her people. She had no idea the impact of her decision. Remember, this, this conversation is so highly unusual because, uh, because Jews do not share utensils with Samaritans. 
Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in the early 700s BC, and they exiled the Samaritans, and they repopulated the place with Canaanites, who of course brought their own gods to worship. And so the Jews in the south in Jerusalem looked at them like they were religiously polluted, but the, the rift was actually much older than that. Before the kingdom of Israel had ever split into two, before it was Judea in the south and Israel in the north, it was united under Solomon. And when he died, his son Rehoboam was in line for the throne and the whole united kingdom was ready to go ahead and crown him king, but they made just one little request of him. They said, hey, listen, can you just lighten up? Because your dad laid some really heavy burdens on us. They were struggling to survive under the, the amount of tribute they had to pay to the crown so they could, could just lighten up a little bit. But Rehoboam, Solomon's son, didn't want to appear weak in front of his friends. And so he said, you know what? No, I'm not, not only am I not going to lighten up, I'm going to make it harder. You think my dad was hard? It's going to be even harder now. And so the 10 tribes in the north revolt. They choose another man, Jeroboam, to be their king in what becomes the northern kingdom of Israel with Samaria as its capital. And, and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, becomes king of the south in Judea with Jerusalem as its capital. But the king of the north becomes afraid that if the Samaritans continue to travel south to Jerusalem to pay tribute to, to, to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem, that he's going to slowly lose control and that he's going to end up losing the kingdom and be overthrown by Solomon's son. So, so to prevent this from happening, to prevent this from happening, he goes to his people and he says, hey guys, listen, it is just too much trouble for you to be traveling back and forth from Jerusalem. It's just a lot of work. So here's what I'm going to do. He fashioned two calves from pure gold, two idols, This is starting to sound a little bit familiar, yeah? He fashioned two golden calves and he said to them, look, Israel, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set them up in the cities of Bethel and Dan to be worshiped. And he scheduled the day for their worship festival to be on the same day as the worship festival of Yahweh in Jerusalem. So on the very day when people are supposed to be sacrificing to Yahweh, they're sacrificing instead to these false gods that their king had made. That is why no God-fearing Jew wanted to set foot through Samaria because to them, the Samaritans had made a mockery of the worship of the one true God. They raised their hands on the same day. They made the same sacrifices, but they made those sacrifices to an idol that was no more real than a 24 karat cow. They had forsaken God altogether. There was nothing of merit that would invite Jesus to this city, to this well, to this woman on this day. But when he encounters her and he reveals who he really is and she runs back to the village to tell the people who might rightfully scorn her for her lifestyle that she thinks she's found the Messiah, all the people come running. There is a, there is a cosmic triumph And the host of heaven rejoices as God himself walked into this God-forsaken town to take back his long-lost bride because not even a thousand years of infidelity can extinguish his love. There are a, a lot of things that I think we learn about Jesus from this conversation, but the thing that stuck out to me most was this. He is never giving up on you. You think he's given up on you? There, there is no place in hell that he would not go to get you back. And this is all possible because Jesus told her the truth and she decides to tell the truth to others about Jesus. 
And this is a calling that he invites every one of us into, no matter our history, no matter our skill set. I know you might think that you're not good enough to represent Jesus because of all the stuff you've done, but look, this, this woman, this notorious woman, is the one that God chooses and uses to win people back who have strayed from him for a millennia because it's not about your credentials, you understand? God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't look for people who are perfect. He looks for people who are thirsty. This woman's witness is clumsy at best. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She didn't, she didn't have to be eloquent. The best evangelism doesn't come from people who are eloquent. It comes from people who are transformed. She just has to be honest. She just has to be willing to take a risk for others to know the truth that she knows. And it, it absolutely is a risk. It's admitting to the people who she's been trying to avoid that they've been right about her all along. You guys have been right about me. This guy knows it. He knows all of it. Could this be the Messiah? But what happens? Do they scorn her? No. They all come running. They all come running. You don't know who God has in mind for you to bring back to the water. My brother Jason said his first curse word when he was three. Uh, if you've ever heard me speak at Regroup, you've probably heard me mention that most of my uh, family of origin were actually were all in uh, recovery for something or other, codependency, alcoholism, substance abuse. We are like the Golden Corral restaurant of dysfunction, just a little bit of everything. But I share this with you now to indicate how it's possible that my brother might have become familiar with a curse word at the tender young age of three. Colorful language is probably the least of our offenses at that time. So. So sweet little Jason, three years old, he's buckled into his car seat in the, in the back of the car and he's trying to put his shoe on. And I don't know if you've ever seen a toddler try to put a shoe on, but it is just comedic tragedy at its best. Um, so, so you can picture him kind of trying to get it on. He can't reach. He's making his little baby noises, <clears throat> little baby dexterity, little baby impatience. And eventually he takes the, the shoe and he just chucks it at the dashboard and he says, effing shoe. Only he said the real word. And my parents were like, oh, where did he learn that word? Well, the, he learned it from them. I mean, I hadn't been born yet, so it definitely wasn't me. But they, even if they weren't trying to teach it to him, in all those moments in between when they thought he wasn't listening, he, he learned it all the same. Listen, guys, sin is sticky. It gets on other people whether we want it to or not. It, it, it never affects only us. It's sticky. Our sin, but also our obedience, will never affect only us. You don't know the ripple effects when you tell the truth or when you withhold it. You don't know if that awkward conversation could eventually save your friend's marriage. Solomon's son didn't know that denying the people's request to lighten up would lead to a thousand years of idol worship. Eve didn't know when she bit into the forbidden fruit that she would one day have to watch her children die. We don't know. We cannot know the damage we will cause with our silence when someone we love needs to hear the truth. And in the same way, we cannot know all the good that we have a hand in when we take that risk, when we expose ourselves to scrutiny to tell other people the truth. Guys, it's worth the risk. It could save a marriage, which could save a church which could bring the word of God to an entire city. Our actions either mean nothing or they mean something. And if they mean something, who can put an accurate measure on that something over the timeline of eternity? 
You are God's plan A for somebody. And, and don't mistake me, I'm not telling you that you get to skip the hard work of staying in the light yourself. You have to first drink the living water before you can carry it. But listen, all I'm saying is don't let your mess keep you from being his messenger. Because there is something irresistibly compelling about a person who has been to hell and who has come back living. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, we confess that we often withhold the truth from other people, from ourselves, that we ignore the truth that would convict us of our own sin, forgive us for our fear and our weakness, give us courage. Lord, I pray that you would give each and every one of us wisdom, and with that wisdom, humility, that we would know the places and the people to whom you want us to tell the truth, whether that's telling the truth to a friend who is headed for, the, for a disaster, whether it's telling a, a spouse or a, or a sibling the truth that they need to be encouraged by, whether it's telling the truth to ourselves, to admit that we have fallen so wide of the mark and we're just not ready to let go yet. Lord, help us to have the courage of this woman to leave our useless water jar and proclaim to all who will listen that there's something better. Help us to draw near to your living water and to drink deeply and to invite others to the spring no matter what it might cost us because whatever it costs us, whatever it costs us, not inviting them will certainly cost them more in the end. So Jesus, thank you for, for never leaving us in the dark of our own misunderstandings. Thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for responding to our cry for help even when we don't understand what we're asking you for. You are grace, mercy, and truth all at once and all beyond measure. Help us to live better like better image bearers of the person you've created us to be. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.